listeners. This is Labor Know Your Rights Podcast. I'm your host, Dave. This episode is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. Contact information can be found in the show notes, including our toll-free number, which is 1-855-625-8610. Please check out Life on Record, a gift of recorded messages for any special occasion to a loved one. See our show notes for details. Big still owners and stockholders were using misleading terms like freedom of choice and liberty of contract to refute labor. The very power of combination the corporations themselves enjoyed. One of Gary's critics was unbelievably John D. Rockefeller Jr., the scourge of Ludlow. Mackenzie King, his labor guru and direct involvement with his operations, Rockefeller had become a convert. Gary had told him that he was being disloyal. Rockefeller stood his ground and urged Gary to modernize his views in order to avert dangerous still strike. Surely it is not consistent for us as Americans to demand democracy in government and to practice autocracy in industry. At the steel mills, three months of picketing and fierce recriminations ensued as law enforcement at every level of government joined with large numbers of scabs, spies, and deputized enforcers to confront striking steelworkers and stir up dissent within union ranks. Martial law was declared in various steel towns and 18 strikers were killed at Gary, Indiana. Both the National Guard and federal troops were called in to occupy the community. A particularly gruesome murder of UMW organizer Fanny Sellings occurred at West Trona, Pennsylvania. She was on her way to file a complaint with the authorities about a special deputy who had killed a minor when she and Joseph Starzowski were set upon by a posse of deputies and shot dead. Arrests were made, but the killings were ruled justifiable homicide, and no one was ever prosecuted. Several issues went against the strikers, such as the federal government siding with the corporations. The railroad unions were refusing to honor the strikes with sympathy stoppages, tens of thousands of black workers stepping in as replacement workers, the campaign of red baiting by the mills, shifting the battle from a labor management dispute over wages and work conditions to one that invoked the alleged radicalism of Bolsheviks and Wobblies. The union again sought mediation, but Judge Gary, sensing victory, refused to negotiate in the bitter cold of January 1920. The strike committee surrendered to U.S. Steel far greater strength and resources ending the strike. It was estimated that more than $100 million in wages had been lost during the work stoppage. On November 1, 1919, the owners of the nation's coal mines proved as steadfast as the steel bosses in rejecting negotiations. When the United Mine Workers struck for a post-war adjustment on wages and hours, a federal court in Indianapolis, with a nod from President Wilson, went ahead and issued an injunction against the strike. John Lewis reviewed the history of injunctions 
and knowing the lack of public support for coal strikes ordered the members back to work. Lewis still was charged with contempt. Some members refused to go back to work and a wildcat strike began, but the government averted a crisis by suggesting a 14 cent wage increase as a stopgap and established an arbitration council to look into the miners' claims of being underpaid. The town of Centralia, Washington was a tinderbox situated in lumber country had a strong IWW presence. It also had several reactionary groups, the Employers Association of Washington, the Citizens Protective League, as well as chapters of both the Elks and the American Legion. Local police were in sympathy with the groups and did nothing on Memorial Day 1918 when Patriots stormed the Centralia IWW office, carried boxes of the group's records, literature, and furniture into the street and fed it into a giant bonfire. A handful of wobblies were arrested. Well, a blind news dealer who faithfully sold the IWW's industrial workers was kidnapped, taken by car to a neighboring county, and shoved into a ditch. By November 1919, the IWW had managed to open a new office in a former hotel. Hearing rumors that the American Legion was going to use a distraction of an armistice parade to assault the new office on parade day. The Wobblies armed men in the office and on a hill across the street. As the parade passed the office, a squad of American Legionnaires, led by Post Commander Warren Grimm, also known as Wedge, broke off from the procession and charged the IWW office. The well-positioned wobbly guns opened fire, cutting Grimm down, but the Legion had superior numbers and could not be repulsed for long. Successfully scattered the wobblies, some of who hid in the old meat locker until arrested while others escaped out a back door and fled. Wesley Everest an IWW lumberjack and decorated war veteran had donned his uniform that morning in honor of the holiday. He had fired at the attackers from the IWW hall, then dropped his rifle and sprinted for safety. As the Legion men came crashing in, he made it as far as a river, just outside of town, before he was overtaken, wheeling around and holding his pursuers at bay with a pistol. A man moved towards him and was shot dead. The rest of the Legion men rushed him, beat him, threw him in jail, and that night he was taken from the jail by a mob and lynched. Attorney General Palmer was part of a Red Scare rounding up radicals he believed was trying to take over the U.S. government. Most were just Unionists. After many raids resulting in many arrests, not many radicals were captured, but those arrested resulted in deportations without trial. In the case of New York's legislature, which in April 1920 expelled five duly elected socialists, the five socialists were Charles Rollamon, Louis Waldman, Samuel Orr, August Claysons, and Samuel DeWitt. In an all-night session, the ouster was discussed. State Senator Clayton R. Lusk said that any man who says this country is not in danger is uninformed, unintelligent, or disloyal. 
Senator William Copeland Dodge countered that expulsion, contradicting the bill, of, saying it contradicts the Bill of Rights. The Assembly voted 140 to 6 to suspend the five. Lewis Post, the Assistant Secretary of Labor, when Secretary of Labor Wilson fell ill on March 1920, became Acting Secretary. He became upset on finding out deportations were being done without representation of counsel. He started canceling deportations and releasing those who appeared innocent. As Post learned more of Palmer's and Hoover's methods, he grew outraged at the extensive use government had made of spies and agent provocateurs to entrap suspects in one scenario, a suspected Detroit subversive were sent notices that a package was being held for them at an American Express office. Federal agents had stuffed packages with communist literature the government had recently confiscated, and when victims came to pick up the packages, they were arrested. A more blatant and unfair form of entrapment the 71-year-old Post could not remember. Post would not have been surprised to learn that Edgar Hoover was in the process of investigating him in the hopes of connecting him to the IWW or some other radical cult. But when Attorney General Palmer asked a House Rules Committee to consider impeaching Post, Congress stated it saw no reason to do so. Post turned the tables by publicly voicing his conclusion of the wrong inherent in the Justice Department raids. In June 1920, in a Massachusetts court ruling that membership in neither the Communist Party nor Communist Labor Party was adequate grounds for deportation, Judge George W. Anderson, in handing down his decision, scolded the federal government and its agents for the slipshod unconstitutional methods employed in their raids in November 1919 and January 1920. On May 28th, a group of some of the country's most prominent judges, including Felix Frankfurter, Roscoe Pound, Swinburne Hale, and Frank Walsh, published with the help of the American Civil Liberties Union an explosive pamphlet titled A Report Upon the Illegal Practices of the United States Department of Justice. Calling Palmer's brand of intolerance, it gave a detailed account of his methods, citing that the Office of the Attorney General, acting by its local agents throughout the country and giving express instructions from Washington, has committed illegal acts. Wholesale arrests, both of aliens and citizens, have been made without warrant or any process of law. Men and women have been jailed and held incommunicado without access to friends or counsel. Agents of the Department of Justice have been introduced into radical organizations for the purpose of informing upon their members or inciting them to activities. The report reprinted numerous affidavits in which arrested radicals complained of being served inedible food, placed for punishment in sweat rooms, threatened with death, and denied exercise or reading materials, as well as access to medical assistance. Hoover, having been tipped off about the publication, had immediately ordered a thorough secret inquiry into the lives of the pamphlet's authors in hopes of discrediting them. The idea of a young, self-important Washington bureaucrat like Hoover seeking ways to besmirch the reputations of the nation's most eminent jurists, including four Harvard Law School professors, 
most of whom he had never heard of, was laughable, although it anticipated the paranoia and underhandedness for which Hoover would be known in his long tenure as director of the FBI. One clear measure of the rapidly declining influence of anti-red fever was the nation's reaction to what proved to be the actual worst terrorist event of the era. A horrific bombing on Wall Street in New York City on September 16, 1920. Powerful bomb secreted in a, a parked horse cart near the offices of J.P. Morgan and Company and set to detonate at noon when lunchtime crowds would fill the streets. It killed 40 people and wounded 200. It harmed only a handful of the leading Wall Street financiers assumed to have been its target. None seriously. Instead, maiming and snuffing out the lives of clerks, messengers, and secretaries. While Palmer lost no time in declaring it a radical plot, a call that would have found vengeful support just a year earlier, now the cry of anarchists or Bolsheviks fell on mostly skeptical or at least apathetic ears. Police suspecting that Carlo Tresca might be involved rushed immediately to his office where they grew alarmed by bulging his suit coat pocket. They turned out to be a sandwich. The case was investigated by the New York Police and the Federal Bureau of Investigation, but never formally solved. Although in all likelihood, the bomber was Mario Buda, a New English anarchist who was part of the loose-knit group that gravitated around Luigi Galliani, publisher of the anarchist periodical Chronicia Subversiva. For many years, radicals in this country have almost universally maintained that the trade unions are fundamentally non-revolutionary, that they have no real quarrel with capitalism, but are seeking merely to modify its harshness through a policy of mild reform. One very authentic reason for the IWW's problem was Chicago trial of 1918 had imprisoned organizations' leadership. Rather than pursuing the agenda of a vital labor organization, these members who remained free on the outside found their time and effort largely taken up by the need to raise funds and mount clemency campaigns on behalf of those stuck in prison. Remember, you're outside for us and we're inside for you, went the words to one IWW song. Even among the incarcerated wobblies, differences arose. Some demanded a principled approach of non-cooperation, agitation, and perhaps even the staging of a strike against prison work assignments. Others endorsed cooperation with prison authorities in the hopes of speeding their release and to lessen the burden on those fighting on the outside. In August 1919, the IAWW managed to raise enough cash to pay bonds for a number of the jailed Wobblies, who were released pending an appeal of their case. Forty-six men, including Big Bill Haywood, who was in poor health, walked out of prison, then embarked almost immediately on a nationwide speaking tour to raise additional defense money. With the war over, there were hopes that sympathy might be shown men convicted under the Espionage Act. 
but neither President Wilson, who continued to revile the Wobblies, nor Attorney General Palmer showed any inclination to offer commutation of the original sentences, and the Supreme Court ultimately refused to hear the IWW's appeal. Although the Red Scare was inning, it did not die out easily. On May 3, 1920, Benzetti learned that an anarchist friend, a printer named Andro Sasada, had mysteriously wound up dead on the pavement 14 floors below the Department of Justice offices in New York City, where he'd been held incommunicado for eight weeks as a suspect in the string of bombings that included the assault on Attorney General Palmer's home. Benzetti had made an unsuccessful trip to New York earlier that spring to see if he could learn anything about Salcedo's detention. Stunned by the strange circumstances of their friend's suicide, Benzetti and Soko were in the process of organizing a meeting to be held in Brooktown on May 9th to protest Salcedo's death when, on May 5th, they were both arrested and charged with the South Braintree robbery and shootings of April 15th. Benzetti was also charged with taking part in a failed payroll holdup in Bridgewater, Massachusetts, on December 19th. Benzetti stated, I have known many good individuals among the American people, more good in them than I would have dreamt. But I have, too, a big pair of mustache, and the Americans do not know if I am a bear or a man and consequently feel unsure at my presence. Worldwide protest over the Sacco Benzetti case and convictions became the 1920s reigning liberal crusade and helped stab off their executions for six years. But after the court denied a retrial and Governor Alvin T. Fuller of Massachusetts ordered a committee to review the convictions, the sentences were carried out on August 22, 1927. There was near universal revulsion at the men's deaths. They were compared to the Haymarket executions. In death, Sacco and Benzetti were enshrined as martyrs to the cause of justice and tolerance. As Benzetti reflected a few months before, he and Sacco went to the electric chair. If it had not been for the case, I might have lived out my life talking on street corners to scornful men. I might have died unmarked, unknown, a failure. Now we are not a failure. This is our career and our triumph, our words, our lives, our pains, nothing. The taking of our lives, lives of a good shoemaker and a poor fish peddler. The last moment belongs to us. podcast with your family and friends please rate our podcast on itunes it helps others find us if you want to contact us to suggest a topic have a question or just want to say hi our contact information is in the show notes along with our sponsor the national league of justice and security professionals where the members come first